If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If this abandoning of the unskillful would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as it brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unskillful. Cultivate the good. One can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation were to bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to do it. But as this cultivation brings benefit and happiness, I say cultivate the good. Often when we hear words like that, when we hear words like good, we imagine a spiritual path that is free of suffering. We imagine a spiritual path that is free of physical pain. We imagine a spiritual path that is free of all kinds of sickness. We imagine a spiritual path that where when we go to work or when we have families or children that there is no suffering. When we hear words like that and we come to retreats, we often imagine that the spiritual path must, because the word good is used, exclude all that feels bad and all that feels uncomfortable. It is very hard to hear these words abandon what is unskillful. I wouldn't ask you to do this if it didn't bring harm and suffering. And somehow to think that suffering is included in what is skillful. It sort of seems much more likely that if we were to abandon what is unskillful on our path, that somehow that would include the tremendous amount of suffering that we experience, that somehow the suffering should not be there. But one of the most liberating parts of this path is that it doesn't hide suffering and it doesn't hide pain. One of the most liberating parts of this path is that not only does it not hide suffering and pain, but it actually explicitly draws it into the circle of our hearts. It draws it into the fields of our awareness and it says, look, let's really look at our suffering and pain and really let's acknowledge it. As I have walked this path, I have seen that one of the greatest sufferings I and other people have experienced has not just been the pain that the Buddha talks about in the First Noble Truth, the pain or the suffering of sickness and old age and death, the pain of being with people we don't like or being separated from people we do, but rather I feel that perhaps one of the greatest sufferings that we experience is the suffering of a personal mythology. The personal mythology of those ideas and conditionings and habits that we've constructed 
and we've painted and filled in and said, this is me. I am. I am intelligent or I am stupid. I am skillful or I am unskillful. I am a lousy meditator or I am a hotshot one. <laughs> I am athletic or, oh, I can't play games. I'm not very good at that. I dance, or no, no, I, I don't dance, that's not, that's not me. I think what I say is actually the truth. I'm arrogant, or no, I don't think I have anything to say. And we construct a story that is tremendously complicated and fleshed out in the most intimate details that guide how we look at our lives, that not only guide at how we look at life and everything that presents itself to us, but guides how we respond, guides how we act, and guides how we feel. This personal mythology means that if we define ourselves in one way and for various reasons that particular definition doesn't come through, we experience the tremendous suffering of failure. I have seen my father, who is dogged by failure his whole life, experience the most tremendous shame and suffering because he constructed a personal mythology of excellence. And that excellence cannot be achieved all the time. And actually, it can be achieved rarely. Excellence is not something that continually repeats itself. And it meant that he was in a tremendous amount of shame and pain because he felt that he wasn't excelling in what he was doing. So whatever that particular construction is, we are bound to fail. And we are bound to experience the tremendous suffering that comes from the sense of failure that arises. Not only is there suffering because we're imprisoned in this particular definition, but there's tremendous suffering because when we align ourselves with one part or certain definitions, then everything else becomes excluded. So to go back to the story of excellence, because he felt that he needed to excel, that this was part of his self-definition, there was tremendous suffering when it didn't come about. And also there was tremendous suffering because he was not able to include the whole experience of failure. So it's not that what we create is bound not to arise all the time, but it means that we exclude a tremendous amount of experience, all the experiences that don't match what we have constructed for ourselves. And that, dear friends, is very, very painful. It's tremendously painful to split ourselves off and to split huge parts of our experience off into illegitimate and not okay. 
And this is not something that is applicable to people outside of this room. This is applicable to each one of us. <laughs> we are all trapped in the construction of a personal mythology. All those places where we don't match up to what we think we should be not, are not only experienced as failure, they experience the shame, tremendous grief, physical pain, and they're repressed. And one of the dynamics of repression of these experiences is that they have the tendency to turn into self-hatred. So it's not only that we've constructed this impossibility, but then we've also repressed what our real experiences are, hidden from view, shamed because we've hidden from view these parts of ourselves that we don't dare expose, not only to ourselves but to other people, and then on top of all this pain, we hate ourselves. It's tremendously painful. When I was six years old, I got sick and everyone thought I had the flu. My grandmother was visiting me and um, I had a high fever and she was trying to persuade me to eat and I wasn't terribly interested in eating but I thought I would try and eat something. She prepared my favorite dish at the time which was mashed up avocado with chopped up pieces of egg and tomato in it. And, um, I, and uh, she was spoon-feeding spoon me and the avocado started coming out of my nose and I started to cry because I experienced this total inability to swallow my food. And she got worried and called my parents who came and they called the doctor and the doctor called a, 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 a specialist and in the space of a few hours I was rushed to hospital with um, the possible diagnosis of polio. So. Um, they didn't wait for an ambulance. My parents drove me to the hospital and um, they were asked to wait and I was um, led to, I, I was actually carried to a bed where suddenly I found myself held down by three nurses quite forcefully and the doctor gave me a spinal tap which is one of these very long needles and they were holding me down in case the doctor um, uh, by accident would touch one of the nerves in the spine which is excruciatingly painful. No one explained to me what was going on and they discovered that indeed I did have polio. I had the kind of polio that is very infectious. There's different types of polio and the one that can kill you. There's one type of polio that paralyzes you but doesn't kill you and then there's another that um, kills you and it's deadly. And so I was put in solitary 
um, I was put in a room by myself. And my parents weren't allowed to come and see me. And so for weeks I was in the process of dying and I had no idea of what was going on. Finally, the doctor thought that I was going to die and so he allowed my father to come in to say goodbye to me. And I remember this, this just incredible grief of my experience. And they had pushed tubes up through my nose and down my throat because I couldn't swallow and they needed to feed me and they couldn't do it on a drip. Um, I, I forget why they couldn't do it on the drip, they couldn't. So there I had these tubes up through my nose and one of the greatest parts of my suffering was that I couldn't suck my thumb because I couldn't breathe. And I was trying to t tell my father this but my palate was paralyzed. Plus I had these tubes in my nose. He couldn't understand me but what he said to me was don't cry. And I remember coming home and my parents were totally unable to acknowledge in any, in any way the experience that I had gone through. I didn't have the capacity to acknowledge it. And what happened is that I repressed it. I repressed all that pain. And this experience isn't a, a very unique experience. Each one of us carries similar stories of one type or another, you know, of uh, very painful experiences in our childhood in which we weren't able to acknowledge what happened because we were very young and because also the people around us, for the very dynamic I've talked about, weren't able to experience and acknowledge the pain. They, they, they weren't not that they didn't feel compassion, I'm sure, but they didn't have the kind of skills to really hold it in the ways that we're training ourselves to hold it. So this, this tremendous feeling of, of, of shame I experienced because I thought I must have done something wrong to deserve, to deserve it, this incredible feeling of shame I held inside of me for years and years and years and it was terribly poisonous and I didn't dare share it with anyone. I thought that only I, only I was this bad, only I could have failed this badly and failed my parents to be treated this way and there wasn't any way that I was going to talk about it. So we carry these spaces and places of suffering and pain inside of us. And because we hold them as our fault rather than as experiences of life, we own them. And that sense of ownership separates us from everyone else and separates us from the pain and suffering that everyone else is experiencing. We are each imprisoned in our own construction and that construction is held together by our identification or ownership as this is me and this is mine.
one of the first steps in healing in the 12-step program is to own that you're out of control and that you need help. <laughs> and I think um, traditionally um, you ask for traditionally you ask for help by surrendering to God. And that has been and that has been a tremendously healing process. I know for many, many people. We are lucky enough, not only for those of you who believe in a God, we're lucky enough to also have the Dharma. Upandita said, there is never any reason for discontent because all you need to do is to delight in and devote yourself to the Dharma. It doesn't matter how much pain and how much suffering you're in. All you need to do is to devote yourself to and delight yourself in the Dharma. And I really believe this. I feel that the, the Dharma is deeply delightful. And one of the reasons I experience it as deeply delightful is because it's kosher to talk about suffering and it's kosher to talk about pain. And it's kosher to talk about those places that each of us carry inside of us that we don't usually talk about. And it's okay to say, this is the mechanism of the mind. This is the mechanism of the mind not because we're bad, not because we're failures. This is the mechanism of the mind because we didn't know any better. And why I believe Upandita is right when he says delight and devote yourself to the Dharma is because the cultivation of compassion and the cultivation of mindfulness or wisdom are the two wings of the bird that bring these spaces and places into the light of our minds, that free them from the darkness of those hidden recesses and free ourselves in the process. <clears throat> Compassion arises out of this understanding of ourselves in pain. It comes as immediate response when we begin to touch ourselves in these places and spaces. It is said of the Buddha in the Vijakana Sampana, it was thought, it was through wisdom he fully understood other suffering and through compassion he undertook to counteract it. It was through understanding he was brought face to face with Nirvana and through compassion he attained it. It was through wisdom he himself crossed over and through compassion he brought others across. It was through wisdom he perfected the enlightened state and through compassion he perfected the enlightened task. Compassion is our immediate response that tremoring of our hearts when we hear of suffering 
when we hear of others' suffering. It is not righteous anger and indignation. It is not that this is just ridiculous. It is really a heart response, a tremoring of the heart to what is felt as painful or as suffering. Sharon Solzberg says, the state of compassion is the trembling of the heart. Can you imagine a mind state in which there is no bitter condemning judgment of oneself or others? The mind does not see the world in terms of good and bad, right and wrong, good and evil. It sees only suffering and the end of suffering. What would happen if we looked at ourselves and all of the different things that we see and did not judge any of it? We would see that some things bring pain and others bring happiness, but there would be no denunciation, no guilt, no shame, no fear. How wondrous to see ourselves, others, and the world in that way. When we see only suffering and the end of suffering, then we feel compassion, and then we can act. So those places where we have felt bad about ourselves, those places in which we feel shamed about <coughs> ourselves, the places that we don't like to admit to ourselves, and we certainly don't like to admit to each other, is really just the grist for our compassion. It is just the food for our compassion. It is just the stuff for our hearts. It is not about being good or bad. It is not about being successful or failing. It is about what causes us suffering and what reduces our suffering. That's all it is. So when we get to see ourselves and when we get to see that contraction of I think I should do it in this way. Then what the Dharma does is to help us see, oh, this is what brings me suffering. And letting it go is what brings me happiness. Not good, bad. Just this is what causes me suffering. That's all. This causes me suffering. And so can I be courageous enough to let it go? Can I let it go? Can we become warriors? Can we become Don Juan? Can we become courageous enough to let go of those habitual definitions and to step into those places that are actually free of suffering? Because it does take courage. It isn't easy to let go of those habits. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to say, I know 
a Dharma teacher shouldn't be doing this. But this is who I am. This is what I'm feeling right now. It's the difference between a lot of constriction and pain and happiness and freedom. And we each have that invitation. There is also another way to look at what's going on. And that is to see that everything that arises, arises because it's subject to particular conditions that we are the way we are because of very particular experiences that happen to us. That we are not just this mythology, this construction of mythology that, that came out of nowhere. We, our responses are actually history. Our responses are history repeating itself. We are history repeating itself over and over again. And that we are history repeating itself over and over again because we were never aware of the initial input. And so we unconsciously continue to recreate it. When we begin to understand clearly our history, for me, for example, the polio situation. And when I begin to understand that what happened, happened because my parents didn't have the blessing of coming to the Dharma and didn't have the guidance in how to become skillful working with their pain. Because I understand that, because I understand that this isn't to do with me being bad, but just a set of historical conditions, relationships, and responses, I'm able to free myself from that place of ownership and identification. The Buddha says that sometimes it's helpful to generate loving kindness and compassion by understanding that we have lived lives for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times, that we have been mothers and fathers and daughters and sons and uncles and aunts. We have been men and women. We have been very old and very young. We have died early and lived long lives. And that when we understand that we have been all these people in all kinds of different places and spaces, we begin to deconstruct the personal mythology that we have constructed. It is not only, it is not only we have constructed a personal mythology which then separates ourselves from ourselves and brings about tremendous suffering, but it's also that we have created a personal mythology about other people as well. So that we find that when people come into our presence who in some way mirror the places we've repressed, we don't like them. If we feel 
people are reflecting in some way the spaces of shame and failure that we can't bear to acknowledge and look at. We don't like to hang around them. If we find people making mistakes, we generally judge them. So not only through this personal mythology are we separating ourselves from our whole being and heart space, but we're actually separating other people too, who in some way or another reflect the opposite image, the mirror image of our personal construction. Well, I like to see myself as efficient. <laughs> I'm not particularly, but I like to see myself that way. Or maybe I am in some ways. So, um, a, a number of years ago, I went to a retreat. I was teaching at a place, and um, it was totally disorganized. The cook hadn't come. There, there were no beds for the retreatants to sleep on. Some of the retreatants hadn't even been sent the uh, acknowledgement of the retreat and directions to get there so that they had found my personal number in the phone book and they were calling me to find out how to get to the retreat center. It, it, I could go on with what was wrong with it, but there was a lot that was wrong with it. And I was teaching with someone else and we, we went up to the uh, bedrooms afterwards and I said, I just can't believe this. And I noticed how judgmental I was of this, of this woman who this poor woman who was trying to manage it. And it was really beautiful for me to see two things. I had, as I was, as I was feeling this judgment and starting to investigate it, because I noticed, gosh, I'm judging. And actually, she was a Dharma teacher who was organizing some of this too. And so, <laughs> as I noticed my judgment and I was like, wow, I, you know, I'm, I'm being really judgmental. I saw, I saw two things very clearly. I saw I was judging the part of her that I didn't acknowledge in myself, that you made a mess of things. I don't know why I'm so judgmental about it. I mean, I don't know why I've constructed being efficient as my particular mythology, but I have, and so I was judgmental that she wasn't efficient. But I also saw that one of the things that happens about this personal mythology is that we're blind to it. And so we go around and see other people's faults and judge them without acknowledging our own. In, and I know I'm, that there are places that we repress and shame, but it's different than the mindful acknowledgement of different places inside of ourselves. So I thought, wow, I'm not able to see the places where I make mistakes so easily sometimes, and that's why I make mistakes, but I really can see the place that she's making mistakes. And I set myself up in my personal mythology as perfect. I'm good. And I judge her. And it was really wonderful to see that actually I wasn't any better than her. <laughs> that I just was blind to my places that she could see, that she probably stands in judgment over. 
we all are imperfect. We all are imperfect. And what's wonderful about having Sangha and friends is that when we're in honest communication, we get to learn about those places where we need mindfulness, where we need the light of our mind. You know, and so what came out of this judgment is uh, this judgment episode, I should say, and the investigation is that one, I, I felt a lot more compassion for myself, you know, because I saw where I was fixated on my efficiency principle. I became much more compassionate about the situation and her and everything that I know what it is organizing retreat. It's a lot of work, you know, and sometimes you mess up. And also, I was able to talk to her about it. And we had a really wonderful conversation, not only about the mechanics of retreats and a meditation center, but also about what was going on for her, you know, what was behind some of the mistakes. And it ended up being a really deep connection and a deep conversation. This is... Um, this is a poem that I know some of you have heard many, many times, so um, please bear with me in case some of you don't know it, because this is, poem is saying the same thing. Look deeply, I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings so fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself onto the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all the walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills up the four oceans. Please call me by my true name, so I can hear all my cries and my laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true name, so I can wake up, and so the door of my heart 
can be left open the door of compassion. I would like to challenge each one of you as you find those messages coming up of I am this or I am that to open up to the opposite as your reality as well. Please, when you think of yourself as lousy meditators and not getting anywhere, please also open to the space of being a wonderful meditator and being right there in the moment. Please, when you feel that you are failures, please open up to the space and place of success. Please, when you feel you're not loving enough, open up to that place that has infinite love because both are always there. The, the Buddha said that it was a very rare and precious gift to be a human being. That if we took all the grains of sand that made up this universe, the beaches, these meadows, I mean just thinking about this meadow here and all the grains of sand that made it up, that's innumerable. He said, we took all the grains of sand that covered this whole earth and then you took just a thumbnail. That's how many beings are born as human beings and come to the spiritual teachings. The blessings that each one of us have here are innumerable. Coming to the Dharma is a blessing that is very, very, very rare. As you think of yourself as unworthy, please also acknowledge the worthiness, the incredible work you have done already, the deep, deep work of transformation you have done already to have come the spiritual teachings of liberation. As you get caught in your suffering and feel imprisoned and encased by it, please also realize that it's what's brought you to the teachings of liberation and without it, you probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> May we all open to all of our experience, the constructed and the deconstructed. May we open to all those around us. May we allow ourselves the gift of a life without the definition of good and bad, but just the acknowledgement of what brings suffering and what brings happiness. In this way, may we all liberate ourselves.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.